0: So we're here this morning to speak about joy to the world. The theme of the ladies Christmas lunch was joy. The theme of today's Christmas service is joy. But I have to say in a real way the unbelieving world has kind of misappropriated the joy of the season in which we celebrate Christ's birth. We've kind of Seen the Christmas holiday covered over, kind of like wallpapered over with gaudy wallpaper, uh, the significance of the event, the, the joy that is Christ has been kind of buried in our determination to celebrate the day, the season with gift-giving and feasting and gathering with family and friends. And, and don't get me wrong, these are good things, mostly to get together with family, to love on family, to give gifts, uh, to celebrate. But but the enjoyment of good things sometimes can obscure our recognition and joy in the truly great thing, and and that's the concern that I have. Uh, No matter how difficult, no matter how dire our life's circumstances are, the fact that God has accomplished a personal rescue of every single person who believes on the name of Jesus Christ is a truly momentous occasion. An occasion that that is cause for the most profound joy that we could ever express. And there's a place in scripture that gives us the most honest reaction of joy That we can find concerning the coming of the savior it's it's an expression of joy that's not covered over with all these good things in fact it's joy expressed by somebody who is facing some really dire consequences it's the joy of the first person who ever knew the exact particulars of the savior's arrival the the when the why the how the where the through whom And of course, this person is none other than a teenage girl who lived in the Galilee region of Israel, Jesus' mother Mary. Now, let me just paint the scene because we're going to be looking at the verses between verse 46 and verse 56, the first chapter of Luke's gospel, a famous passage known as the Magnificat. It's actually a song. Uh, The Magnificat, that title comes from the Latin rendering of the first verse of her song, Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. And let me paint the picture of the scene leading up to when she breaks out in this effusive praise, which is this very famous song. Mary has learned through the angel Gabriel that the Messiah was growing inside her body. She had been visited by this angel who told her that God's plan of salvation would come through a child that she would give birth to. And of course, she's pondering this, wondering how this could possibly happen because she had been recently betrothed to a man you know of as Joseph. And he's telling her that she will be overcome by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is going to plant this child into her womb, and she will give birth to that child, the savior of the world. And of course, this is deeply troubling in one sense because having been betrothed to Joseph, it would become instantly known that this child would not be his biological child. This would render Mary in the eyes of her village her family, as an immoral woman. Moreover, the child that she would bring to birth would be considered an illegitimate child. And so many things are weighing on this young woman as she is considering the message that the angel has given her. And she is, she is resolute in her telling that angel that Be it as the Lord wishes. In other words, I'm signed up. I'm all in. But she realizes that she needs some moral support, so to speak. And so she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Now, her cousin Elizabeth is a a woman who's considerably older than Mary. In fact, maybe considered to be past the child-rearing age. And yet the angel also told her that there's a child growing in her womb as well. Another miracle child Is on the way. And so probably because she had a good relationship with Elizabeth, but also because Elizabeth now has been touched by the divine to bring about something in her life that mere human beings could never even fathom, Elizabeth becomes the perfect person to whom she could go and confide. And the moment that Mary appears on the scene at at Elizabeth's house and, and cries out in greeting the child in Elizabeth's womb that we would know to become John the Baptist leaps in her womb for joy. And it's at that moment that, that Elizabeth turns to Mary and expresses the fact that she is the mother. Mary, you are the mother of our Lord and the Lord God is growing in your womb right now. And this was something that that encouraged Mary in, in a great way and and confirmed that which the angel had told her and gave her a sense of comfort and peace that you know this is going to be this is going to be okay this is not only going to be okay this is going to be amazing this is going to be a moment in the history of the world that from that moment on everything will be different and everything will change and so Mary becomes a perfect lens for us to understand the joy that is Jesus. I say that not because Mary was different from us. And with due respect to other religious traditions, there have been things ascribed to Mary that that simply don't come to us from the scripture. She she was not intended by God to be co-redemptrix with Jesus. Jesus alone occupies that status, as the one who redeemed the world. She would not be um, considered an intermediary between us and Jesus. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, says the book of Hebrews. She was not one who was born without original sin, as is the doctrine of immaculate conception attributes to her. This is not what what the scripture tells us. No, Mary was a human being just like you, just like me, born into a sinful world with a sinful nature, and yet God esteemed her as the one through whom the Savior would be born. And so, and, and, and just to put a fine point on it, this is a young woman who's got a lot at stake in being that one. Her reputation is now going to forever have a cloud, a stain upon it. Her son is forever going to be looked at with jauntous eyes. We would hear later in the Gospels how the priests and scribes would would view him as an illegitimate person, as a person whose father is not known. And yet he is the very father that all of their religious traditions and prayers go up to. And so We can look at this song that Mary sings that just comes forth from her because of the sheer joy that she has. And her joy is expressed in three different contexts. What God has done for her, what God has done for humanity, and what God has done for the nation Israel. And you might be wondering, most of us in this room, perhaps all of us are Gentiles. Why would we care about what God has done for Israel? I'm going to explain that in a few moments here. But if you would, please stand with me because we're going to read the verses that, that outline or that bring forth this beautiful song of Mary. Again, it's known as the Magnificat. And this is what we read. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will, be, will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him. and return to her house let's pray father we thank you lord for this account of joy this young woman lord just at the very beginning of her life hears the call from the holy god is granted an unspeakable privilege to bear the savior into the world and in spite of the trials and the difficulties that that would present for her mortal life here on earth She gladly received it with joy. And so, Lord, this morning, as we go through this song of hers, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would be infused with the same joy that she had, knowing that the Savior is coming into the world, that much like she bore the Savior into the world, we have a commission to bear the Savior to the world. And so, Lord, fill us and change us this morning, because we are here to hear from you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's look first at what uh, we read here that uh, Mary is speaking about concerning what God has done for her. And we see there in verses 46 and 47, we see there she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She speaks of two aspects of her nature. She speaks of her soul, and she speaks of her spirit now her soul would be comprised of her mind and emotions and she's telling us that her mind and her emotions are in line with magnifying the lord when we're filled with the joy of the lord we are magnifying god to those around us this is why it is such a wonderful thing to come together it's not often we actually come together on the actual day of christmas very often, Christmas falls on a different day. We get together on the Christmas Eve. But this year, it happened to fall on Christmas Day. And, uh, and rather than not have a Sunday service and have the Christmas Eve service, we wanted to have it on this very day. Our souls, our minds, our emotions magnifying the Lord. But that magnification of the Lord, it's, it's precipitated or it's, it's the catalyst of it is what she says about her spirit. Rejoicing in God, my Savior. You see, of our three-part being, which we are created in, to be patterned after God, who is also a three-part being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are a soul a spirit in a body. And I've explained, the soul is our, our, our thoughts and emotions. But our spirit is that portion of our makeup that, that has the, the capacity to commune with the Almighty. We were made as human beings to have fellowship with God. And even that the sin nature that is in us tamps down the qualities of the spirit to commune with God, that spirit is there. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our spirit is awakened to God. And it is God's spirit communing with our spirit that provokes in us the presence of God and the joy of his presence. And that spirit moving into her soul gave her this effusive praise for him notice that in this this place and also in other places in scripture where people break into uh, praise of god it doesn't usually have anything to do with how they're feeling at the moment in fact some of the most beautiful praise we find in the bible which we find in the book of psalms the psalmist often david the king writing that writing those verses of praise at times when he was feeling terrible he was feeling depressed. He was feeling oppressed. He was being chased. He was, he, his life was being sought by his enemies. See, if we, were, if we wait until we feel like praising God, the enemy can give you a 100,000 reasons why you just don't feel like it right now. But when your spirit is communing with the spirit of God, he can provoke in us That desire to praise God and give him thanks. The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord has nothing to do with how we're feeling. It has nothing to do with who we are. It has everything to do with who he is and what he has done. And in our worst moments, in our times of our most abject failures, he's unchanging. He's already covered and taken away the very sin that you might be grieving over in this very moment. And so she she lifts up her voice in praise because her spirit is communing with the spirit of God that spirit has provoked her thoughts and her emotions to understand what is happening to her and what will be true for the world and she cannot help but praise him. Notice too and you know for those of you who are Old Testament scholars because you faithfully come on Wednesday nights um you might notice that the verses that we have here in, in the Magnificat, there's, there's 15 different Old Testament scriptures that are referenced here in, in what she speaks. And this is, this is typical of people who know the word of God well is that the Holy Spirit organizes their thoughts, organizes their memories, gives them the words of God to praise God And we see, for example, her, her, the way she structures this song, very similar to many of the psalms. For example, Psalm 34, verses 2 and 3. The psalmist writes, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Mary's song of praise sounds a lot like the song that Hannah sang. Hannah was the mother of the prophet Samuel. And she was considered a barren woman. And she prayed her whole life that God would bless her with a son. And the Lord miraculously gives her a son. And she breaks out in a similar kind of praise filled once again with the scriptures. And this is is something that the Apostle Paul and scripture in general directs us to do is to use the words of God to praise back to him the things that he has told us. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Mary's song that we see here in the Magnificat is a natural outgrowth of her being filled with the spirit of God and being knowledgeable of the word of God. And it's amazing how this one book that we hold in our hands has the richness of words and verses that we can literally speak back to God in ways that are unparalleled praise. And this is something that Mary does. Now we see in verse 48 that she gives praise to God Because he has chose her to bear his son. We read, therefore, he, God, has regarded the lowly state of his his maidservant. For behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Mary will be called blessed, again, not because she's different from us. Not because she possesses qualities, supernatural qualities or or divine qualities aspects of nature that we don't possess, but because among all of the women who have lived since the beginning of time and indeed would even exist from this time forward, she was the one in this fallen world through whom the Lord would would bring the Savior. She's impressed with the fact that God regarded her. God, God regarded her. That is to say, He took notice of her people think that when someone says something that that uh, is disagreeable to who they are on social media or whatever that they have been hurt that it's violence because somebody spoke against them. And I'm here to tell you that the most sincere form of of disrespect is not saying something that's in disagreement with you. It's not noticing you at all being ignored is the greatest form of disrespect that there is. If you're disagreeing with somebody, it at least means you regard them. You've listened to their point. You've found fault with it, and you're expressing it to them. But when you are not regarded at all, that's the high, highest form of disrespect. But God, the God of the universe, regarded her. He looked down upon her. He saw her in her situation. And for reasons that are only his reasons, he chose her to bear the child. And this is something... That, uh, that, that just filled her with joy. Now, I hope you don't think that I'm over-spiritualizing that verse. But understand, Mary was overcome with joy because God regarded her to bear the Savior into the world. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God has regarded you enough to name your name as his since before the foundations of the world. That God called you to him, we want to you know get a medal and a chest to pin it on because we came to Christ. Christ came looking for you. Had He not come and drawn you to him, you would never have come because He loves you, and even more than that, He has regarded you enough to be a vessel of His spirit and His word to bear the Savior to the world the great commission that we all share as believers in Jesus Christ is God's commission to say I've regarded you I've chosen you I've filled you with me now go into the world and bear me to the world and so the joy that Mary had in bearing bearing Jesus into the world is the same joy that we should have in bearing the Lord to the world as well in verse 49 She expresses joy that God has done great things in her. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Of course, the greatest thing that he has done for her is to give her Jesus. And the greatest thing that he has done for you and me is to give us Jesus. This is not a day to give low regard to the salvation that Christ has won for you. I know we tend to focus more on the suffering servant, the sacrifice that Jesus gave when we're at the Easter time of the year, the Resurrection Sunday. But equally today and every day, we need to remember that God has done great things in us and for us. It starts with our salvation It continues with our sanctification. That each and every day that we live, Jesus Christ, through the sometimes ridiculous circumstances of our lives, he uses those situations to continue to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. He continues to break our hearts for the things that break his heart. And I would gladly be in sorrow on any given day If my heart was broken for that which breaks the Lord's heart. Because it shows then that Jesus Christ is living in me and through me. And that's the desire of my heart. And Mary gives praise for that. Now she moves on to speak about the the praise to God for what he has done for mankind. And and I I agree that these verses are very summarily stated. But every word carries great import. She says there in verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him. Now, when we think about fearing God, we are not talking about the kind of terror that is the latest disaster movie or the horror movies that uh, seem to just proliferate like rabbits in our midst. It's not the scary kind of fear because something is actively trying to destroy you. When we think about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about a reverential recognition that he is God. If we hearken back to Romans chapter one, which seems like we've incorporated into a lot of Bible studies lately, and he's speaking about those who have rejected God, that passage starts out by saying, for although they knew God, they refused to recognize him as God. You see, there are a lot of people who understand the concept of God. I think it's one of the first early concepts that we have a a sense of. Is that, well, there's me here, and then there must be something else or someone else that got me here. And that, of course, is God. And so when we have the fear of the Lord, it's really an expression of our recognition that he is God and we are not. And you know, it's, it's interesting, um, anytime we see people in scripture who have an encounter with God, now in Mary's case, she had an encounter with God's messenger, Gabriel, and now she's having an encounter with God growing in her womb. But any place you find in scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is snatched up to the throne room of God. 2 Corinthians, where Paul is snatched up to the third heaven. Revelation chapter 1, where John sees the vision of the Lord. In every single case where somebody has that kind of experience, direct, tangible, palpable experience of the holy God, they immediately think considerably less of themselves and oh so much more of God. And this this is kind of where Mary is coming from His mercy is on those who fear him. And I think the kind of mercy that God shows us is the kind of mercy that he wants to not only give us, but to live out through us. In the prophet Micah's book, he writes in Micah chapter six, verse eight, he, God, has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, what Micah is saying there is that when we have this encounter with God, we desire to do the things of God. We desire the justice of God. We love the mercy of God because he's shown it to us. And so we, we must show it to others. And because he's God and we're not, because we now know that, we walk humbly with him. Not pridefully, not impetuously, not uh, self-sufficiently. And that's what it means to, to have this reverential fear for God. We see in verses uh, 51 through 53 that the ways in which God loves the world are not the man's ways. We see there in verse one or 51, He has shown strength with His arm, and He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. It's funny because the world seems to promote the rich, the powerful, and the beautiful. Now, in the era of social media that we live, a fourth thing seems to be celebrated by the world, and that's outrage. The most outrageous behaviors seem to get a lot of play with people and a lot of attention of people. And these are not things that God elevates is it we see there in verse 51 that God actually opposes the proud he he looks to those who in the imaginations of their own hearts are conquerors of the world and and are there to take more for themselves these are things that God puts down he scatters the proud but he he lifts up the humble. The scripture tells us that those who are not filled with themselves, those who lean on God each and every day, those are the ones whom God elevates and loves. In verse 52, he tells us that God will oppose those who use their strength to exploit the weak, and he will lift up those that that are of a low degree. Right now, we see a lot of injustice in our world. We see a lot of people who are suffering greatly. And we see in the midst of that suffering, injustice, sometimes even downright evil. And we cry out to the Lord, when will this end? So many believers of the current age in which we live are now very, very much attuned to the prophetic word because they can't believe that things could get much worse before the Lord's return. And the thing that we need to understand And particularly if you've got a keen eye for the kinds of calamities that the world will experience during the the, uh, tribulation. There's a long way we could go from here to there and still not be there in terms of terrible things that could happen in this world. And yet Jesus Christ is there to lift up the lowly, to lift up the humble, to give them the promise of eternal life. I mean, think about the situation that Mary was in. Her whole world was in danger of coming apart because of the circumstances of the birth of the Savior. And yet she disregarded those things. She disregarded the opinions of people for the privilege, for the joy of bearing the Savior. Verse 53 tells us that he will prosper those who are poor in this life. And he will not be extending additional provision to the rich who exploit others. And this is no no, um, attack on people of means, not at all. And that's not what Mary is referring to here either. There are those who have means because God knows he can trust them to use God's resources for the cause of the kingdom. And then there are those who gather riches to themselves because somehow they believe that those riches give them a better life a better future and whatnot but we know that it's appointed to man to die once and then the judgment and if you face that judgment without jesus christ then then everything that you've gathered was for naught and yet the lord when he speaks of the poor he speaks not only of those who are poor in means but also poor in spirit that the lord is ready to lift them up to enrich them to give them every spiritual blessing in heavenly places to give them a seat at the table of God's house. And so she she looks at what the Lord is promising for the world, and she's overjoyed. Now, the last thing that she turns her praise to is something that, as I mentioned at the outset of this Bible study, might seem puzzling to you. Not puzzling to you because Mary, let's face it, Mary was Jewish. But she's speaking now praise that would be echoing through all of human history. And one would wonder, how do we identify with what she's saying? She says there in verses 54 and 55 and he helped his servant Israel, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Now, again, I raise the question okay, why should we as Gentiles care about God's promises to Israel? And there's a very important answer to that question God's character is on display and at stake in every promise that God has made to Israel. The promises that God has made to Israel are promises, you could say, you know, there are some promises that you have a 100% chance of of fulfilling every time. If someone said, I promise to give you a dollar, I'd have a very high degree of certainty that uh, I'm gonna get that dollar because it's not that costly of a promise to fulfill. But the kind of promises that God has made to Israel are costly, improbable, might I even say seemingly impossible. And so we would have to ask ourselves as people of the Bible, which believers are, if God has made a myriad of promises to a people and then does not keep them, We would have to have serious question as to whether the promises that God has made to us, the church, are ones that he would keep as well. You see, whenever we make a promise, we put our character on the line. Whenever we make a commitment, we are saying that you can count on that commitment because of who I am. This is why it is so important that we teach our children. Look, if you commit to something, buddy, you better follow through on that. Because you start to pile up these these hits to your character. And before you know it, no one believes anything that you say. And God has said a lot to Israel. God said in Jeremiah 31, verses 3 and 4, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He's speaking directly to his people, Israel. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you, and I will build you, and I shall rebuild, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Now, if you've tracked the history of the Jewish people, you know that they were cast out of the land that God had promised them on several occasions. And with each uh, chastisement of casting them out of their land, God had promised that he would bring them back. And then when they were cast out in 70 AD, some 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, they were not only cast out, but they were kicked to the four corners of the earth. They were hunted and persecuted on every continent except Antarctica, in the world their nation was no more their government dissolved their culture cast to the wind the name of the place was even changed different peoples migrated into there and even back in the 1800s there was a Lutheran minister who wrote a book the title of which escapes me right now where he he said that the people, the Jewish people will be back in the land of Israel as a nation. I have no idea how that's going to happen. I know that most of the world doesn't even want it to happen. But the Bible says it and I believe it. And one of the greatest things about living in this time, this time in which you and I live, many, some, not many, but some of you in this room actually were alive When Israel, I have to speak louder because you probably can't hear me if you were alive. (laughs) Israel becomes a nation on May the 14th, my birthday, but who's counting, 1948. And they are a nation today against all odds. They have had uh, unbelievable challenges to their sovereignty and their existence. They have had existential crisis one after the other after the other. They are still there. They will be there until the Lord returns. And this is a shining example of the character of God. He said it. It happened. There has never been anything like that in all of history. And so we might ask ourselves, well, what what kind of promises has God made? If, if that is a shining Uh, down payment of God's character Then, what might we count on as Gentile believers. How about this? John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Wow, there's a promise. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. For my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That's a whale of a promise. How about this one? This is found in uh, Romans chapter eight, picking up in verse 31. And I want you to listen carefully to this promise. This is where we're gonna close the Bible study. Listen carefully to all that is said in this promise because God is speaking to you In the midst of all the doubts you may have about your faith, in the midst of all your doubts about whether God even exists, consider this. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you have there is the most comprehensive assurance, insurance policy, that the eternal life that Christ has promised you is real, that the love that he has for you cannot be diminished, it cannot be challenged, that even that there are forces in our midst that could take our bodies and our mortal life, the eternal life that we are promised trumps all of that, that you are secure, Even in the difficulties of this life, you're secure in the hand of God. No one can snatch you from his hand. These are the kind of things that came to Mary, again, teenage girl from a remote region in Israel, in the Middle East, selected out of all the women in history. You're the one to bear the Savior to the world. And now after that, you're the one to bear the Savior to the world. So to close our service this morning, I'm going to ask Vince to come up and Jeff, his accompaniment, um, to share with you uh, a song, Mary, Did You Know?, which speaks very tenderly of um, what must have been going through this young woman's mind as she has been given this amazing ministry to the world.